Hello, and welcome to Investing with a Buy Side. My name's Nate Abercrombie, and I'm the host of the podcast that strives to level the playing field for all investors by providing corporate access. The opportunity to meet with business executives and learn more about a company is a privilege and an advantage that institutional investors have over everyone else. Investing with a Buy Side intends to change that by delivering management interviews to the broader investment community. Tune in each week to hear corporate management discuss their companies, industries, strategy, and vision. If you'd like to learn more, please visit investingwiththebuyside.com. Welcome to the very first episode of Investing with the Buy Side. My name is Nate Abercrombie, and I'm the host and founder of Investing with the Buy Side, or IWTB for short, because, well, investing with the buy side is a little bit wordy. You probably got a good sense from the intro what this show is all about. The motivation behind IWTB is that every investor should have the opportunity to hear management discuss their business. These discussions will be structured in a way that's something in between a one-on-one at a sell-side conference and a casual conversation at a cocktail party. You might be wondering what a one-on-one is, and, and it's probably helpful if I describe what the word buy-side means. But before we get into that, allow me to provide an outline to the intro. The first thing I'd like to touch on is what the buy-side means and what a one-on-one is. Then I'll highlight how and why the money management business is changing, or at least why I think it's changing, and what I think is wrong with the industry, and also how these changes are creating opportunities or dislocations in the market. That will lead us into why I left the buy side, and finally, a description as to how the IWTB podcast will work. So let's kick things off with what the buy side means. It might even be better if I start at a really high level and describe who the players are in the institutional money management business. Now this is a grossly, grossly oversimplified version, and I'll probably catch a lot of flack for framing it up this way from friends and colleagues. But here goes. Let's just stick with equities or stocks to keep it as simple as possible. Stock ownership includes you, me, and large institutions. You and me are very, very small fish in a very, very large pond, more like an ocean. The big fish are institutional money managers, which include mutual fund companies, hedge funds, ETF providers, even though they don't really manage money per se, insurance companies, well, you get the picture. These big players that own securities on behalf of others are the buy side. The individuals who perform the task of researching companies and industries with the ultimate goal of making recommendations to portfolio managers to either buy or sell a stock, they're called buy side analysts, which is what I was before I started IWTB. Well, if you have a buy side, you have to have a sell side, right? The role of a sell side analyst is very similar to that of a buy side analyst, However, there are some key differences. The biggest difference is that the sell side doesn't have skin in the game, meaning they don't own positions and securities on behalf of their clients because, well, their client is the buy side. The buy side is the client of the sell side because the buy side receives research, financial models, teach-in sessions with sell side analysts, and corporate access. The easiest way to think about it is that the sell side sells research and the buy side buys research. But the simplest explanation isn't always the most accurate, especially from a textbook sense. The reason it's called the buy side is because they're buying securities or stocks. And the sell side is selling 
securities or stocks. But it's not accurate to suggest that sell-side analysts are driving around in pickup trucks with the beds full of shares of company XYZ, honking their horns, yelling out the window, calling for buy-side analysts to come out and buy more. Sell-side analysts work for investment banks, and investment banks do a lot of business with public companies. And so they have a lot of access to management teams and good insight into what's going on. Sell-side analysts are doing pretty much the exact same thing that a buy-side analyst does. But one of the most important and useful services the sell-side provides the buy-side, in my opinion, is corporate access. Every big investment bank out there has a conference every year for every sector where they invite company executives to sit down with their existing and potential shareholders, i.e. the buy-side. Buy-siders, especially from really big firms, go to numerous conferences like these every year. These conferences are almost always held at swanky hotels where the halls are packed full of investors, drinking coffee, snacking on cookies, chatting with friends and colleagues, and waiting for their next management meeting. You go from room to room where the beds have all been removed and replaced by a big table and some chairs. You sit down on one end, and management's sitting at the other. Sometimes you're sitting with other buy-siders, and sometimes you get management all to yourself. When you have a management team all to yourself, this is a one-on-one. Group meetings can oftentimes be just as useful as a one-on-one meeting because you get to sit there and listen to what other investors are asking. And sometimes... Those other investors know quite a bit more about the company than you do. But hands down, my favorite types of meetings are one-on-ones. You get to ask all the dumb questions you're embarrassed to ask in front of other investors. And they're just a lot more personal. You get to learn about a business instead of just asking about what's going on next quarter. Because believe me, there are a lot of investors out there who are only focused on near-term types of events, which in my opinion isn't very helpful to the investment research process. So after about 30 to 45 minutes of questioning, you say thank you, you stand up, and you move on to the next management team. From a personal perspective, I can tell you that it's a truly remarkable and humbling experience. You recognize how insignificant you are in the world of business, but it's also humbling because you recognize you don't know everything, and there's a lot that you should learn before making a decision to invest or not invest in a company. At a really high level, It's a pretty surreal experience to sit down in front of a CEO and a CFO or anybody from the C-suite representing a large publicly traded company. You get the feeling that you probably don't deserve to be there, and I certainly felt that way. But it was never lost on me that so many management teams probably only accepted a request for a meeting from me because of the size and reputation of the firm that I worked for. But here's the kicker. The firm that I worked for didn't give two shits about the sector that I covered. I was wasting management's time, and I was also wasting my company's time and their money. But there are a lot of inefficiencies in the money management business. And this is a big part of a buy-side analyst's job. Go meet with companies and ask questions about the business and try to gain some investment insight. I know I gained a lot of insight, which is one of the reasons why I decided to leave the buy-side. And this brings us to why I quit a job that had some pretty unreal perks and paid a pretty nice salary. Okay, it was an okay salary, but let's just be clear. There's a lot of people out there who think they should be paid more than they are. But in this industry, I suspect there's quite a few more people that have that feeling. But that's not the reason why I left the buy side. The mutual fund industry is changing, or at least the small little silo of the mutual fund industry that I was a part of was changing in a way that 
conflicted with how I envisioned the actively managed mutual fund space. Actively managed funds should hold positions in companies whose stock prices should go up more than the fund's benchmark. You manage your fund or you position your fund in such a way that you're generating alpha for your fund holders. What I witnessed was more along the lines of, don't invest in highly volatile stocks, make sure that your sector weights look much more like the benchmark, ignore things like active share, valuation doesn't matter, and it wasn't very common to see a PM go massively overweight a particular sector or stock. The actively managed fund starts to look just like an index fund, but with higher fees. Why would you ever buy an actively managed fund with holdings that look just like the index or benchmark, and then pay a fee to the actively managed fund that is significantly higher than the fee for an index fund? The sole focus was no longer on the fund holder or the individuals that own shares in the mutual funds that were managed by the company. There was a lot more focus on the shareholder or those people that own shares in the company that is managing the mutual funds. Now keep in mind, that with every publicly traded mutual fund company, there is an inherent conflict of interest. To elaborate, a publicly traded mutual fund company has shareholders to answer to. And like all other publicly traded companies, the ultimate goal is to increase shareholder value. You do that by increasing profits, increasing margins, growing the business. But how do you do that for a mutual fund company? The only real way to grow is to increase capital inflows, make your funds bigger. And the only way to see capital inflows is if your funds consistently beat the benchmark. To consistently beat the benchmark, you need some super solid talent. And to retain that talent, the mutual fund company has to provide adequate compensation. Adequate compensation at least commensurate with performance. And the lower the fees go for actively managed funds reduces the ability for a company to pay for and retain that talent. It's necessary that we touch on passively managed funds or ETFs in order to get a better idea as to what's going on in the industry. ETFs continue to grow like crazy. And so mutual fund companies are forced to compete against a potentially superior product while at the same time charge a higher fee than that superior product. So basically what you're seeing is actively managed funds becoming actively passive funds. And this is, in many cases, upper management's response to ETFs taking market share away from actively managed funds. From my perspective, it looks like we'll continue to see more mutual fund companies assimilate rather than differentiate, meaning hug a benchmark, lower your fees, which means funds will not be able to retain talent. Fund managers and upper management will continue to make a conscious decision to play it safe and not take any sector risk. At least that's been my experience. I'd like to note that a lot of these decisions are being made by upper management. There are some portfolio managers and the vast majority of buy-side analysts that don't have any control over the direction their firms are headed. There are mandates that come down from the top and you either click your heels or you can leave. I decided to leave because I don't see things changing anytime soon. And so just to weave all of that together, ETFs are gaining market share, traditional mutual funds are losing market share. In order to become relevant, upper management at some mutual fund companies have made the conscious decision to go actively passive, while at the same time charge a higher fee than a passive fund. I'm definitely more of a deep value kind of investor, and there's no place for a deep value investor in an index fund. 
So for those reasons, I became fed up. I was exhausted. And I felt like I was going crazy because I felt like there was an enormous amount of injustice in the direction things were headed. And so, for the past two years, I don't think I did much more than launch in a few companies that portfolio managers would never buy and respond to emails from PMs that were far too reactionary for my taste. And I really didn't feel like I was adding much value at all. And it was also about two years ago on a long road trip when I ran out of podcasts to listen to. And I was driving through an area that had no cell phone coverage, and I just started thinking about what I would like to listen to then and there. And and it was a period in time when a company that I was covering wasn't faring very well in the stock market. And I thought about how helpful it would be to hear management's perspective as to why the stock was reacting the way that it was. And And then it occurred to me that a podcast that airs management interviews might be something that is extremely helpful to the broader investment community. Unfortunately, it took me about two years to make the decision to leave the buy side and start this new venture. And so it's probably important to talk about what the podcast is all about. You should know by now that it's obviously about corporate access, but how does it work? So investing with the buy side intends to publish one management interview per week. My target audience is anybody who has an interest in investing, especially those investors who lean towards value or misunderstood stocks will find this podcast extremely interesting. My hope is that folks on the buy side, the sell side, as well as retail investors, financial advisors, high net worth individuals who invest on their own will hopefully get a lot of value out of this podcast. I don't plan to get too deep in the weeds, and I'm not the type of investor who really cares about next quarter's numbers or even what the numbers might look like six months from now. I like to focus on the big picture. I like to understand trends. I like to understand what's going on with a particular business and how that relates to other companies and other sectors, what it means for the economy, and I like to talk about valuation. At the same time, I want to provide enough detail that a professional investor will also find as helpful, interesting, and educational. I think it's important to emphasize at the outset that IWTB will not be making any investment recommendations. And just because a company or a management team is featured on the podcast does not necessarily mean that IWTB has a particular view on the intrinsic value of the share price, but rather certain aspects of the equity valuation fall within the IWTB investment philosophy. By bringing a management team onto the podcast, IWTB is not suggesting you, the listener, do anything with the information you gain from the interview other than learn about a business, an industry, a business leader, or something about the economy that might help your investment decision-making process. And lastly, IWTB humbly asks that both investors and management teams try to recognize the altruistic nature of what IWTB is trying to accomplish. And before closing out this first podcast, I'd just like to highlight Warren Buffett in his most recent Berkshire letter, where he says, and I quote, We do not follow the common practice of talking one-on-one with large institutional investors or analysts, treating them instead as we do all other shareholders. There is no one more important to us than the shareholder of limited means who trusts us with a substantial portion of his or her savings. 
And with that, I'd like to say thanks for taking the time to listen to the first Investing with a Buy Side podcast. And hopefully, with a little bit of luck, IWTB has at least some success in leveling the playing field for all investors, and maybe even help our audience achieve superior investment returns. Thanks for listening, and until next time, take care. So if you're still listening to this, it probably means that you haven't been able to find the stop button on your mobile device, or you're just a diehard buy-sider. Whatever the case, you are now listening to the acknowledgments section of the intro podcast, where I get to say thanks to the people that have made this all possible. First and foremost is my wife and two daughters. A huge shout out to Lord Tilly and Tessa. Without the three of you, none of this would be possible. Also, a big thanks to Brad, Blake, and Joey. Brad, whose voice is used in the legal disclaimer, and Blake and Joey for being awesome, patient test subjects from a recording perspective. Thomas Cryan from Fiber.com. And then also the guys that have made it all possible from an opportunity and guidance perspective. KPK, Noah, Jim, Pete, and Brett McKay. Thanks a million to everybody, and until next time, take care from IWTV. TV.